breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode, another week of Reforming on Reform This. Always great to be with all of you, and thank you for joining me again. If you've listened before, a lot to talk about. Week of 9-11, the 18th anniversary of 9-11. The commemoration of the most significant attack on our soil. An act of war by radical Islamists committed on 9-11-2001. 18 years have passed. What have we learned? Where are we today? I want to start with I'm going to share with you, uh, we went to Minnesota, by the way, um, a few of us, uh, part of the Muslim Reform Movement, and I also participated in a CPAC conference in Minnesota, participated in a panel on Some People Did Something. I want to talk to you about that experience, too. But before we do, the most important thing this week was 9-11. We should never, we can never, we will never forget Every 9-11 we remember that if there's anything we leave for our children, if there's anything that we do, we need to make sure that our legacy will be that we never return to the same mentality that we had on 9-10-2001. And I fear, less so today than I did during the eight years of the Obama administration, but I fear that we're still pretty close. I do believe with the Trump administration that we have had an administration that is not allowing us to falter, that is not allowing us to stand idly by or sit idly by by while the radical Islamists are growing, that ultimately ISIS was defeated more quickly than anyone would have ever thought once President Trump unleashed the Department of Defense to do what they needed to do in Syria, Iraq, and elsewhere. And ISIS still remains defeated today. But jihadists, jihadists are growing more than ever. And we'll talk about that. But when we remember 9-11, our country was attacked by radical Islamists. Not by some people who did something. It was an act of wanton terror, an act of war against our fellow citizens. At our organization, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, with every breath that we breathe, we've dedicated ourselves since then to keeping our nation safe. I opened my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, saying that as a Navy veteran, I wondered at times what it was like for my country when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, what it really felt like to hear such shocking news over the radio. It was not until 9-11 that I had any real sense of what that day must have been like. However, in many ways, I believe that the history will view the 9-11 attacks as being far worse than Pearl Harbor. Why? The attack on Pearl Harbor, as terrible and horrific as it was in entering into World War II, was military in nature and largely targeted our U.S. Navy. It was an act of war against us by another 
country's military. And it was the sworn duty of my fellow naval officers ever since the United States ever had a Navy that it is their sworn duty to protect, to serve, and to fight wars to protect us. While 9-11 was an attack by terrorists upon civilians, upon the business infrastructure of New York City. And it was executed by men who claimed to do so in the name of God. And as a Muslim, it is the it is hard for me to put into words just how horrific this is. And I'm writing this right after 9-11. How deeply I believe it betrays my faith and the depth of sorrow I feel for the victims. Like all Americans, I feel that day will always be with me. And as a Muslim, it forced me to confront the realities. Once the shock, and I wrote this in a battle for the soul of Islam, once the shock of the attack wore off, my next response was pure rage. I wanted to get even with the bastards who had done this. And what added to my fury was that they had done this in the name of my faith of Islam. I had to find a way to address how angry I was about what had been done and at the same time make it clear to my fellow Americans that our Islam was not what was represented by these madmen. I had no idea what a big job that would really be, and in fact it would become a second calling for me. The need to make the world aware of the difference between Islam and Islamism. To the extent President George W. Bush was right, they do hate us for our freedom. And then it goes on. I know I always have to reflect, as many of you do, each of us in our own way reflect on what happened on 9-11. No, some people did not do something. Al-Qaeda radical Islamists attacked us. And I have to tell you, did, did any of you have the horror to look at what tweet came out of the New York Times this week on 9-11. The horror, the abject horror of the tweet from the New York Times. Here it is. I, I cannot make this crap up, ladies and gentlemen. New York Times tweets this week, 9-11-19. Quote, 18 years have passed since airplanes took aim and brought down the World Trade Center. Today, families will once again gather and grieve at the site where more than 2,000 people died. Airplanes took aim and brought down. Airplanes took aim. Not jihadists, not Islamists, not Saudi nationals, not radical Muslims, radical Islamists. People just didn't even, the inanimate planes took aim. 18 years later, what have we learned? We learned that the far left is, is clearly, and we knew this from the beginning, but I think America's starting to become a little more facile in having a conversation about the fact that the far left globally is working hand in glove with the Islamists, that red-green axis. The far left will continue to cut us at the knees, preventing us from having any type of rational conversation about the ideology that precedes militant jihadism is nonviolent jihadism, civilizational jihadism. The concept that militaries, that 
your daily identity belongs not to the country that you live, but rather to the jihad, the global community, the ummah, Arabic word for faith community, but also for Islamic State, the ummah's unity in jihad, be it violent or nonviolent. That is what we've learned since 9-11. And the Islamists have found that one of the ways in which to advance evangelically their spread of their ideas is to piggyback onto the minority politic of the left, the identity politic, the politic that tries to separate us and divide our communities, not based on unifying us under an American identity, but based on a division based on ethnicity, on color, on religious identity, but not religious ideology. So they exploit, as long as people, the the Islamists are going to vote for them, they don't care what they do internally. It's a bigotry of super low expectations. They really don't care what's being done internally. Linda Sarsour might as well be a fascist, hardline Islamist. They don't care that she endorses Saudi Arabia's maternity 12-week vacation and says they treat women better than the West. They don't care about this nonsense. As feminists, no. Bernie Sanders is proud of sending out her videos endorsing him and how she, through clearly what was pandering or taqiyya, as the Islamists call it, intentionally lying in order to get to an end's regardless of how corrupt and how much she knows she doesn't believe what she's saying, they will, Bernie Sanders' campaign will spread her video and let it go viral that she's proud to endorse a Jewish man, Bernard Sanders, she said this week. Barf. And it's sad that the Sanders campaign, who, by the way, his campaign manager is one of the Muslims that created the most grotesque fabrication of a report masquerading as an actual study when in fact it was simply a bunch of hookah type hookah bar type conversations about Islamophobia and that fear and Islamophobia report Faye Shacker is now the campaign manager for Bernie Sanders. So it's not a surprise that Linda Sarsour is becoming a surrogate. And it's not really about the 1% Muslim vote. They probably have that anyway. It's more like amplifying the responsiveness, the, the, the marriage between the left and the identity victimization movement. The left and those who cry bloody murder if you criticize anything about the Islamist movement, Islamism, or Islamic theocracy. We've not learned. What we have learned is now the left is mobilized. The gift that keeps on giving, ladies and gentlemen, is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. How is that? I know yeah, she's pretty radical and she's mainstreaming certain radical ideas, but it's a gift that keeps on giving because... We are reminded that now America is seeing front and center in the social media and media platforms that she's been given who actually leads our communities. 
America seeing front and center that it's not a few one-offs here or there, that this is the same ideology of anti-Semitism, of BDS support, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, which wants to see Israel in total completely destroyed. There's no endorsement of a recognition of the protection of the state of Israel in the BDS movement. Media Matters said that my comment about her support of BDS, that Israel, they seek to destroy Israel, is somehow anti-Muslim bigotry. That was Media Matters Soros's organization. That was their comment about that. Really? Please show me where in the BDS material, and not to mention its head and its connection to Hamas and support of terror groups, etc., all the violent groups that it supports, to say that anyone can deny that the ultimate endgame for the BDS movement is the economic destruction of Israel. There's nothing about parameters being met by certain human rights requests in the Palestinian areas. There's no uh, a list of things they demand. They ask, actually, the things they do demand are not simple. They are a retur- right of return of Palestinians. The right of return back to lands they lost in multiple wars. The right of return means the destruction of Israel, where Jews become a minority and it's no longer a Jewish state. You know, I think it's fascinating that, yeah, it's a gift that keeps on giving. And I think this is one of the things since 9-11-01 that we now, 18 years later, realize that like treating cancer, our country is getting sicker before it gets better. But... Yes, as Reagan said, we're one generation away from losing our freedoms. I do not, I am hopeful. I do not believe we're going to lose our freedoms. I believe that radicals like AOC, when you're talking socialism and far leftism, Islamists like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are providing the antiseptic, not the antiseptic, but the light upon them provides a clinic and the type of antiseptic that needs to be expressed so that Muslims can wake up, non-Muslims can begin to understand what needs to be done. We went to Minnesota this week, and I say we, I'm talking about the Muslim reform movement, myself, Esther Nomani, Shireen Kodosi. Some reports are online at the Investigative Project on Terrorism and other reports Alpha News, Powerline was there. And in, in those reports we see, especially at IPT with John Rosamondo, a, a discussion of exactly, we had two events. One, The main one we went was a town hall event that we called Honoring Islam by Asking the Appalling Questions, by taking on the appalling questions. And we got that from, I talked to you about this here in a few podcasts ago, from Ilhan Omar's repudiation and and attacks upon Ani Zonafel at, at an Islamist conference where Ani had the temerity to question her about FGM. And Omar's response was, 
I'm sick and tired of these appalling questions. And then she sarcastically, with a smug attitude, said that, do you think we should answer this on Monday? Question of Hamas, Tuesday, Al-Qaeda, Wednesday, FGM, Thursday, ISIS. This is somebody who only months earlier had been taped saying some people did something on 9-11. This is somebody who tweeted out about the Benjamins, tweeted out about anti-Israel support of BDS. Even though she campaigned saying that she would not support BDS. Telling her Jewish constituency that she would not. This is a dishonest, pandering, likely Takiya artist who may not even be that religious personally based on some of her activities would be it from marrying her brother, immigration fraud to marriage problems, divorce, affairs, whatever it might be. We'll see what the record shows on that. But that's actually almost less important to me. The reality is that she is a icon of the Islamist movement. Turkish media is using her as an example of the ideal Muslim. Islamist media in Qatar, the, the Muslim people should strive to emulate. That's what they're calling her in Arabic and Islamist media. So, what did we learn? We learned militarily we're not going to win this fight. We are not going to win a fight against an ideology that continues to regenerate itself and is built in a foundation with a nuclear core that will never be deconstructed and irradiated until we reform and destroy the idea of the Islamic State. ISIS didn't come out of thin air. When we formed our organization, AIFD, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, 2003, we said it is to protect and preserve the U.S. Constitution through the separation of mosque and state. And that separation is necessary not to separate faith from politics, religion from daily practice. No, to prevent the ideology of the establishment of religion from taking hold in Muslim activism around the world. So the Islamic states attach faith identity to the flag, to the social construct and contract of society, and to the legal system making it sharia, not reason-based, and to the national identity, making it theocratic in its laws, and not secular, liberal, welcoming all, but simply those who toe the line of jihad and its militaries thus are about jihad. So, when you see Ilhan Omar tweet out support of a kleptocratic, corrupt telecom company, Hormud Telecom, that funds Al-Shabaab, she does so because her lens is about supporting jihadist movements, wherever they may be. Her lens is about Jihad being a personal struggle for her, but never criticizing those that are militant because to her, Islamic history at the time of the Prophet being about jihad is something we cannot change, and at least the constituency of hers also believes that. With a wink and a nod to those still in Somalia and those in Minnesota that are supported by the tribal warlord leaders of her friends in Somalia. 
I rarely will ever attack their patriotism because, you know, they believe that the patriotism for the Islamists that are American is to make our flag someday have a little green star and a little crescent. That that's patriotism to them. That's the America they envision because to them, loving a country is about making it Islamic, making it Sharia compliant. And that could still to them be America. No, Americanism to me is something exceptional and unalterable. And I reject the New York Times 1619 project, which is trying to deconstruct exceptionalism because it's all built according to the New York Times in their grotesque series. And I say grotesque because, listen, nobody is ever, ever doubting the need to vociferously and strongly condemn slavery. And our, our country fought a civil war to do so, with hundreds of thousands dying to reject slavery. But the New York Times today does not want to accept the fact that America has faults, that we continue to correct with bigotry that's being addressed, that needs to be addressed more so, there's no doubt. But that does not mean that the entire history of America then becomes something you throw out, revise, or eliminate and deprecate that Abraham Lincoln somehow was wrong when he said America is the world's last best hope. So, I reject that. I believe, as Abraham Lincoln said, we are the last best hope. And every 9-11, I'm, I'm reminded of not only the beauty of America, but what, how we're, what every generation has fought to maintain. And this battle against jihadism will continue. It'll continue to test us. It will continue to test us because we are not, there's still no offense. We still need an offense, ladies and gentlemen, to to spread the ideas of liberty. Because not only do democracies not fight wars against one another, but the Arab dictators, the tyrants, are on their heels. And when they leave, that vacuum will be filled with militant Islamists because the Islamists have an offense. They have an evangelical movement to spread their ideas, not only to the West, but into the vacuums of the Middle East with the Qatar, Turkey, Iran access, and now the Taliban working to spread that viral Islamism. And the bulwark of Egypt and Jordan and Saudi is not going to make it because it's tyranny. Those are tyrannical countries. They may be anti-brotherhood. They may be less problematic for the West, as allies, but also as anti-Islamists, but their method is not only corrupt in dealing with Islamism and evil, it is a way to regenerate and fuel it with gasoline. When you put them in jail and torture their journalists and give them blasphemy laws and tell them, well, jihad is okay, but it's only if the Egyptian military does it, but not the Islamists. No, jihad is done. Yes, it can mean inner struggle, but no longer should we ever have violent jihad. No longer should a state ever have a military that declares jihad. The military declares security and defense of the state of Egypt, of Saudi Arabia. It will never be a jihad. 
Because, A, how can the Coptic Egyptians participate in a jihad? It just at its face value is meaningless. Unless you have an Islamic state. And then that becomes the intoxicant that radicalizes the rest of the population. So as you look at the Middle East, we need to start, and you look at the Islamic world, we need to stop compartmentalizing and begin to develop a strategy. And I think that's not only what we've not learned yet, but we need candidates, we need leaders that can begin to do that. I believe the Trump administration has the people in it that get it. Secretary Pompeo. And, you know, I have to, I pause there because to see Ambassador Bolton, NSA, National Security Advisor Bolton, have to depart this week was heartbreaking. I thought he brought a synergy of not only experience, but a enough of a similarity and approach to global conflict and identifying the enemy that it worked well. It worked well in striking fear in our enemies. It worked well to allow our commander-in-chief to fulfill his promises that he made during the campaign and to have a pragmatic approach to our Middle East policy and to our anti-Islamist policy and also to Russia, China, and elsewhere. And yet he left He offered to submit his resignation, and the next day, President Trump this week actually said that he fired him. And I found that disappointing. Very disappointing, because there was no evidence that National Security Advisor Bolton had done anything in any kind of way that deserved that kind of dismissal. They may have had their disagreements, as most do, but I'm sure he'll be followed by somebody qualified. But I think as you look at the steely-eyed approach that we need in developing a strategy, I, I felt that he was in a position to do so. And he did so, I'm sure, while he was there. And we'll see who comes next. Charles Kupperman, who's followed... I think you can tell from his history with the Center for Security Policy that is more than qualified and will also be an excellent replacement. He's currently the acting National Security Advisor, and we'll see if he stays as the NSA. And you know he's great because the Council on American Islamic Relations came out and said they were appalled by his selection. <laughs> You know, is that becoming an Islamist term, appalled? Uh, everything they see and say, they're appalled. <laughs> but actually, that became a stamp of approval. If CARES protesting within 10 minutes of his announcement of filling in, then he must be fantastic. Last, I want to end this week's podcast talking about you know, people are talking all over the country, but all the Muslims running for office. All the Muslims running for office. And it seems like the most the majority of them are on the Democratic tickets from state houses in Virginia and California to 
federal office and God knows where, all over the country. So what does this mean? And most of them are Democrat. Why? Because the PACs, the Islamist PACs, are beginning to get enough money to do so. And why are they all Democrat? Well, I want to talk to you about that for a few minutes. First of all, what's happening in the left? I talked to you about the fact that the, the Islamists are seeing the success of the, the radicals of Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, and they're saying, we need more, we want more, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're getting excited about it, even though these are really exposing how radical they are. They don't care. Their base is the Bernie Sanders base. And that base isn't squonking at all. They could say anything pretty much that is pro-Islamist and they won't care. They'll continue to support him. So the Muslim Brotherhood actually had its founding meeting. I talked to you about this in a podcast a few weeks back of the Muslim Collective Caucus. Collective, it's called. Which basically was about a Muslim uh, 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 faction of activists that formed a farm team for future candidates. And that's where Omar repudiated Annie Zonefeld with her appalling question about FGM. So we see the Emerge Pack, which is a pack that talks about supporting Muslim candidates across the country. So if you think the Brotherhood, while they may not have that name, the lead Muslim Brotherhood activists in the country are in those packs and organizations because that's what the Brotherhood is. If somebody asks you, what's the Muslim Brotherhood? The Muslim Brotherhood is a political party in Egypt, Jamaat Islamiyah in Pakistan. It's a political party with candidates, a platform that includes instilling the spirit of Sharia law and instilling and placing Islamic legal systems and law into place once they get into office, making the Qur'an, the Constitution, and the identity of the state, the Islamic state. It is a theocratic movement. That's Islamism. And they're becoming far more active in in actually empowering candidates to run. You see uh, the, the uh, you know, Isam Omesh, one of the founding fathers of the Brotherhood from a generation ago, his daughter now is running for office in a state race in a, or an education, uh, one of the school boards or something like that in Northern Virginia, and she has just as many Muslim Brotherhood sympathies as her father did, does. And you're seeing other candidates across the country. Now, what about Republican Muslims? Why aren't they running? There, there was a very, uh, I think, respectable candidate who I didn't get to know very well, but I thought that his campaign looked fantastic and uh, seems to be a a Muslim with a patriotic pedigree. And I think what was good about him and what you're going to see in other Muslim Rep- other Republicans that run that happen to be Muslim, and I use that to dif- to differentiate the Muslim Democrats that are Muslims that that demand to be recognized as Muslims in the Democratic Party. 
So the issue is, as Republicans, we are inherently against identity politics. We are inherently against collectivizing subgroups within our community. I'm not saying there aren't Republicans that do do that, from Italian Republicans to other ethnic groups, etc. I personally don't like that, and, you know, uh, I'm not rejecting the pride of ethnicity. But the reason I personally do not get involved in that type of politic is because I have to tell you, in doing this work against Islamists, the identity movements make no sense for an ideological activist. It doesn't make any sense. Yes, I might be able to share with them my Arabic music and spiritual holidays and, and Islam, etc., but that's not part of our activism. Yes, we want to protect minorities, but we should all want to protect minorities, not have one minority want to protect itself first. No. So if you're not protecting yourself as a minority first, then you're a Republican first. You're an American first. And that's it. Politicians like to pigeonhole groups so that they can talk to them and check the box more quickly. And rather than deal with shaking millions of hands, you divide it into a hundred groups of 10,000 or whatever it is. So, you know, the, the time will come, I think as, you know, I think with the Ilhan Omars of the world running and showing and exposing how crazy our leadership is in the Muslim community, how Islamist they are, I think that's going to be an inspiration for conservative Muslims who share the ideologies of conservatives to begin to say, you know what, maybe I should run. But we're not going to be creating workshops so Muslims can can become more active. No, because their preparations will, will, will be organic. Because what happens when you force people to run just because they belong to a certain pigeonhole is when you start seeing craziness like you do with Rashida Tlaib who starts swearing like a truck driver and talking about impeachment and other things where she doesn't even have a clue of what she's talking about, where people just aren't ready for prime time and yet become the torchbearers, the standard bearers for our communities. So I hope we'll start to see more candidates that happen to be Muslim. There are no Muslims in federal office right now, Senate or House, that are Republican. But I'm sure there'll be other candidates down the road. But there'll be candidates who media will have to find out that they're Muslim or their history will show activism as Muslims. But they'll likely, if they're genuine conservatives, run on their run in their district on the top 10 issues that their 600,000 constituents care about the most. And the personal faith tradition or whether it's a Muslim woman that wears a hijab how we dress are of the least concerns of most Americans. And no, the, the Muslim, the, the Republican Party, the conservatives in America are not bigots. Yes, you have some swaths of bigotry that might exist here or there, both on the left and the right. And yes, we need to address it. I reject the term Islamophobia, but Islamism is a problem. 
And I do think for whatever bigotry exists, I, I blame first Muslim movement. The Islamists who, who, who make Americans feel ashamed or, or weakened from responding or somehow that they should have to uh, uh, qualify their remarks, it makes them in a way act restrained that then creates pathology with certain road rage or whatever it might be that reacts. So in some ways that's incitement. It doesn't excuse it and bigotry must be addressed, but it is no different when the Islamists talk about incitement, it's also their activities that are inciting too. And that's why the most, the most therapeutic mechanism is to allow us to have frank conversations as we did in our town hall this week in Minnesota. Frank conversation. And, and take a look at the video on Facebook at Muslim Reform Movement. We got some questions from folks who came fit to bear, heckling us, interrupting me about, uh, and obviously had some significant disgust for my work. I'm not going to call them conservative or far right. They were folks who might as well have been articulating the Saudi government's line about Wahhabism when they said that Islam was full stop the reliance of the traveler Sharia book, Shafi text. Yes, that text was a book that Esra brought because we realize that it dominates the legal interpretations of Islam. We realize that we don't have a book to throw on a counter and say that this is the reform Sharia. No. We still have to even, we're in the fetal stages of fighting that. But we are on the field. The people at that town hall, some of those who are anti-Islam, I think that's the best way to describe them. <laughs> I describe them in a piece as al-Jihad too. Why? Because they basically articulate the exact premises of jihadists. Now, obviously, they are anti-jihadists. But when you articulate and you sound like you are you dismissing Muslims that are devout, that want to reject old texts and begin to build schools that can have imams that write new schools of thought, when you dismiss us as not Muslims, as a fantasy Islam, as Steve Kirby and so many others did, and they brought questions from these, obviously from these individuals again to throw at us, which is fine. We tried to answer them, and then they vanished like a bunch of cowards after the, after the conversation. And when we come to address them, no, they're really more about dismissing us, no different than the Erdogan regime would dismiss us because Erdogan says there's only one Islam, there's no moderate Islam. Erdogan says there's one Islam. And that's what the Steve Kirby's and Carl Goldberg's and some of these people that had come to our town hall to we tried to have a conversation and they instead wanted to suppress our free speech and yell and shout and heckle at us and laugh at us. That's fine. I think you learn a lot. The fact that, you know, it's interesting. If you watch the video for those, uh, many people came up to us. Muslim students from the MSA at that school came up to Esther and talked to her afterwards and said, we never realized what you guys go through when you actually do address tough questions. We learned a lot. They're not learning that from the Islamists that are leading organizations that they thought were just about Islam and are turning out to be about a theopolitical movement. And we have a lot of work to do. We do it from humility. We do it from contrition. We realize that 
our communities have been failing to live up to the responsibility of being American and protecting the U.S. Constitution from these threats, that we do have a responsibility to address these threats fully and wholly and not shirk our responsibilities. And 9-11 should remind us of that every year. And it does. And we will never forget. We will never, ever forget. Hats off to the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC Minnesota, for the courage to title their event, Some People Did Something. Because those words were said by Ilhan Omar, speaking to CARE in a fundraising dinner in which she, you could tell in Inside Baseball, as she's talking to her fellow Islamists and raising money, she just wanted to dismiss it. Hey, you know, some people did something and then everybody gets all really mad. That's my paraphrase. But the audience she said it to makes a difference. And I think the lens that we look at things makes a difference. And this week, we looked at it, at the lens and realized that, thank God for a president now that allowed us to defeat ISIS. But I hope and pray that we will begin to actually move forward and realize that it's not about military action. It is about countering theocracy. And that's what we need to do. God bless you all. God bless the security and safety and blessings and health of your family. And may we make progress together as a country against the threat of jihad, of Islamism, and all those who do not see us as the shining beacon of freedom in the world. This is Udi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.